Hello, and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Assad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Imran Siddiqui. Imran is an advocate, nonprofit leader, and prominent voice for justice in the American Muslim community. He currently serves as the executive director of the Washington State Chapter of CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations. CARE is a national Muslim civil rights and advocacy organization. It is America's largest Muslim civil liberties organization with chapters in 20 states. Imran is one of the organization's leading voices on social media, including its efforts to overturn the Muslim ban. Imran, welcome to American Muslim Project. Can you tell us a little bit about CARE and what your role is leading the Washington chapter? Yes, CARE is a civil rights and advocacy organization that is dedicated to serving the Muslim American community. It has been around since, I believe, 1994, based out of Washington, D.C. Um, over time, it's evolved and grown to different chapters across the United States. So I was previously the executive director of CARE Arizona. Um, I had joined the organization back in 2010, and um, now I am the executive director of CARE Washington State. So we're just dedicated to being a civil rights and advocacy organization for the Muslim community in Washington State. And we focus on different issues such as, you know, hate crimes, you know, the growth of Islamophobia in society. We work on media representation for our community, and we also do legal and policy work as well. So we're trying to close the gap between our elected officials and our community members just to build more fruitful relationships over the long term. Yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like CARE does a lot of work um, uh, across the country and, and certainly regionally as well. Uh, what is the stuff that you're focused on right now? What, what is important to you um, in 2021? Yeah, I mean, I just joined the chapter back in, in October and just moved to Seattle area in in the end of 2020. So really trying to immerse myself as much as I can during a pandemic in, in a new community, obviously. Yeah. So here it's, you know, alhamdulillah, it's, it's a, a really welcoming environment um, for Muslim activism. So as opposed to Arizona, where there may be a, a, a huge amount of opposition to the work that we're doing and not that, that huge of amount of support um, on a policy level here in Seattle and, you know, in the Pacific Northwest generally, there's a support system of, of you know, legislators, congresspeople, um, local officials. You have foundations that are really trying to help build up the, the capabilities of these communities that, that we serve. So that, I think, is important, building up the uh, a pipeline of, of talent in our community here, building up the next generation of activists, making sure that we have good capabilities within our community, whether it's it's folks that are pursuing law, it's pursuing, you know, policy work, journalism, any type of related fields. We want to help get people to where they want to be from a youth perspective, but also achieving systemic change. There's, you know, the Muslim community has dealt with a huge amount of Islamophobia over the course of the past 20 plus years. And we're still going to be dealing with it regardless of the administration. But being a part of the solution on larger societal issues like police accountability, um, you know, just the 
the civil rights structure of what's happening in, in the world today. So I think, you know, our community and our organization can be a part of making systemic change to make this a better place. I, I was wondering, we probably have some some listeners who might uh, be new to this phrase. Can can you tell me what Islamophobia is and, and how you would describe it to people? Yeah, it's it's a multi-layered word and we didn't choose that word. It sort of just, it, it landed upon us and that became the overarching word to address the rise in anti-Muslim hate that existed in society. Even though Islamophobia is a, a pretty new and contemporary word in terms of the last 35, 40 years, it may have been Edward Said that, that coined the term, but it just encompasses an irrational fear of Islam and Muslims, and it can stem back. You can look back to the time of the Crusades where there was you know, false propaganda that was spread against Muslims as being barbaric or a, a clash of civilizations. You know, you go into the contemporary times in the early 1900s and, and you know, the mass migration into the U.S., there were still types of anti-Arab, anti-Muslim animus that existed on a societal level here in America. And then, like, you have most recent and modern Islamophobia that is is really taken hold in the post 9-11 sure. era, where you see a massive rise in hate crimes against Muslims or folks that are being perceived as being Muslim. That can include Arabs, South Asians, it can include people of the Sikh faith, it can include just folks that have darker skin. Um, so a lot of it is racialized. Independent of 9-11, there, there's really been, I would say, an industry that has been dedicated to fomenting and planting anti-Islam animus within society. Since about 2010, CARE and other organizations have looked at the tax filings of about 35 to 40 hate groups that have existed here in the United States. And just to see how much funding that anti-Muslim organizations get, folks that are wor working on a legislative level, folks that are out there putting, you know, anti-Islam bus ads, folks that are working to train police departments. So this is a this is not just like a, a one-dimensional type thing that's happening. There's hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars that's being spent wow. on spreading anti-Muslim sentiment, and it reaps rewards. You saw what happened with with Trump getting elected, obviously sure. in 2016. His his lead into being elected was anti-Muslim sentiment. In 2015, when he made his his first speech, the f thing that he led with was banning Muslims from coming into this country. So it's something that resonates and that has, has continued to resonate within uh, a lot of bases within the United States. And it's resulted in, in hate crimes, in the rise in harassment, in structural bigotry that exists like on a local, state and federal level um, that stays on the books today. So needless to say, this obviously has like on the ground impacts uh, in terms of our community members, you know, like Muslim sisters who wear the hijab are exponentially higher, uh, high likelihood to get harassed out there in the world, whether it's road rage or in traffic. Muslim students, according to bullying reports that have been issued by CARE California, are twice as likely to be bullied than their peers. So these are larger issues that that are stemming from just this this unnatural phenomenon, like money, money and hate go hand in hand. And that's, that's one thing I would say that the listeners need to, to understand. Yeah, I was surprised that it's, it is such an industry. And um, can you talk a little bit about, about the, I mean, you're, you said billions of dollars. Can you talk about this industry and what, what that entails? I'd love to know a little bit more detail. Yeah. Whereas you have organizations like CARE and, you know, other Islamic organizations that are nonprofit organizations, they've worked hard to achieve 
nonprofit status and and work for the cause of the public good. There's also organizations that are out there that have achieved nonprofit status to work to help plant division and and hatred within within this country. One, I mean, there's there's a handful of organizations that have been on the periphery of this type of hate. You, know, you have like the Middle East Forum that's led by Daniel Pipes. You have Jihad Watch, which is led led by Robert Spencer, and then um, there's something called the Center for Security Policy, which is headed by person named Frank Gaffney. I think a lot of these folks that were part of these hate groups were considered to be fringe characters that were just out there spewing hatred. And they they had an audience in places like Fox News where they could just come on and, you know, just be a polemic about Islam and how Muslims are violent and, and hateful and they mistreat their women and so on and so forth. And so they always got some sort of platform on these types of channels. But what you really saw, like in terms of the Trump administration actually gave a lot of these folks like, you know, full access to to be within the gears of government. So Frank Gaffney from the Center for Security Policy was on the Trump transition team, for example. Oh, Pamela, really? Wow. Yeah. Pamela Geller, who is one of the most notorious anti-Muslim bigots, you know, throughout the past 25 years, she had a White House press credential issued to her. So she had free flow in and out of the White House. You have people like Brigitte Gabriel, who had unfettered access to the White House uh, over the course of the past four years. Act for America is one of the most nefarious and hateful groups. Um, they very much mirror the model of care where they where they uh, open little chapters across the United States where they get grassroots activists involved in, in the efforts and do their bidding on anti-Islam propaganda. And they do this, you know, on a city council level to try and pass anti-Islam resolutions. They do this on a school board level to try and edit how Islam is portrayed in textbooks. They really have the goal of portraying Islam through the lens of terrorism and not being one of the world's great um, and largest religions. And you look at anti-quote-unquote Sharia bills that have been introduced in like over 35 states across the United States. And this, these laws, even though there's no threat of, of Sharia taking over the United States, these states like Oklahoma or Florida or Tennessee and even Arizona, where, where I'm from, um, they've made it a point to introduce these types of resolutions to try and not necessarily curb the practice of Islam, but to change people's perceptions of Islam and Muslims. And that has had a pretty successful run in terms of changing people's perspectives. Is there? Do you have any sense of where the funding is coming from? Is it is it everyday people or is it you know yeah. larger donors type of type of thing? Just as as though we we live in the time of you know dark money in politics, where they create like shell organizations and shell companies oh, yeah. in which to run money into the the hate groups are also pretty smart in terms of masking where they get. A, a big chunk of their money from. The sad thing is that usually, like, I think most of us have brought, been brought up in of the thought process that if you are a hateful individual, if you espouse this hate openly, um, racism and bigotry, that society is going to push you to the fringes and you're going to be somebody who's labeled as, as not a serious person in society. But what we found with Islamophobia is that there's hardly any societal consequence to play for, you know, pouring your money into it. It's it's not something yeah. that is going to get you kicked off of uh, the board of your company. It's not going to get you unseated from Congress or anything like that. And so people can outwardly be as, as hateful as they, they've wanted to be in, in the past 15, 20 years. 
Can you give some examples of Islamophobia that's happened in the States? I know, I know that in the past, you, you've mentioned things like firebombings or even just people getting yelled at, but can you give some examples of, of concrete examples of, of Islamophobia that's happened in the last 20 years in, in the US? Yeah, it's been all different, all different levels, you know, like mosques being vandalized at a rapid level, you know, mosques being burned down, such as in Joplin, Missouri, mosques being firebombed and various places, pigs heads being left outside of mosques in places like Philadelphia. Wow, really? Pigs heads? Yeah, pigs heads. You see bacon being left on doorknobs and things like that. Um, So, I mean, these incidents, especially during the Trump era, you saw just a massive rise in in these types of of incidents that that have taken place. And then you have things that are happening to, to people, you have just a, a rise in the level of, of harassment that takes place. And, and the vast majority of folks that are the recipients of this harassment, they don't ever report it. They just internalize it and they don't feel like there's going to be any recourse if they get called you know, a terrorist or any type of name. So these are just the day-to-day type things that happen. You know, I, I was a witness to an armed mosque protest in Phoenix, Arizona in 2015. And you have folks... 300 people, many of whom have AR-15 assault rifle wearing masks. Masks are normal now because we're living in a pandemic. But, you know, like these are folks that are dressed up in army fatigues, you know, militia members and bikers and so on and so forth, having, quote unquote, draw the profit contest to try and like gas up Muslims, I guess you could say. And like they're marching around with, with automatic weapons and these are called free speech rallies or Second Amendment rallies and are not considered hate crimes. Uh, Muslims have to just basically sit back and accept these types of things happening in front of them. And this this was just scratching the surface. This is, how, you know, how did something like that make you feel? Obviously, it's a concern. I mean, it's, it's, it's a concern from the community because I have seen the violent rhetoric that has been building up online over the course of the year. So you know that the rhetoric is already there. Now you're seeing an actualization of the actual guns being brought to your house of worship and people surrounding you and like being protected by police. All of that to say is like, okay, what if something goes wrong in this situation here? Like where somebody who's a counter protester and there were more counter protesters than protesters way more, by the way, you know, so that's good. That's a good reflection on society. But what if something goes wrong? What if one of these individuals that has a gun, like in the case of that, that 16 year old um, in Wisconsin, Kenosha, who, ends up like bringing his gun and then he ends up shooting and killing somebody in that, in that situation. Like these are things that there's like a fine line between these types of things happening. So I was concerned about the safety of our community. And as we see, like from that time frame and beyond now, then you see like a true actualization between that intersection of gun culture and Islamophobia, where you have a, a mass shooting in Quebec city where six Muslims right. were killed in their house of worship. You have a, the Christchurch shooting, which 55 Muslims were killed in their house of worship. You have Pittsburgh shooting, Poway shooting, where Jews are killed in their house of worship. We we have to deal with these things right alongside the Jewish community. When Jewish communities are targeted, Muslims are also targeted as well. You have, you know, like the Charleston shooting with Dylan Roof going in and, and killing nine people in their house of worship. And then just this basically signaled that we're entering a new area of just massive, massive gun violence and that our community sits on that, you know, the front lines. I think after that point, like a lot of Muslims sat in their houses of worship and, you know, if you're sitting by a window, you you, you sort of are thinking in the back of your mind, like what happens if, if somebody walks in here with a gun? Like what, what, what exactly would 
I do in that situation? And that's no way, you know, for somebody who's trying to worship to really think about and to live. It's it's it's, it's unfortunate, but I think that has had like a, a negative psychic imp- impact on folks. We're a resilient community, alhamdulillah. We're we're we bounce back from from these types of incidents and and things like that happening. But it it also signals that there's a, a really big problem that exists out here in society. We're going to take a quick break. Up next, Imran shares how he talks to his three children about Islamophobia. This is American Muslim Project. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. I'm Assad Butt. My guest today is Imran Siddiqui, the executive director of the Washington State Chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations. I first got to know Imran by following him on Twitter. He's got a large following on there, and he recently used his platform to draw attention to an Islamophobic incident on an Alaskan Airlines flight out of Seattle. I asked him to tell me about it. Yeah, so, you know, it's still an ongoing case, but essentially what happened is like this was early in 2020 prior to COVID hitting two Muslim men. They were in first class, too. That just gives you a little bit of pause. Like even if you're you're in first class, like you're 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 not immune from being profiled and and so on and so forth. But they were flying back from a business trip and they were basically texting on WhatsApp to somebody in Sudan, I believe. And they were texting in Arabic. One of the individuals used like a rocket emoji and like other emojis in, in the process. And somebody who was looking over the shoulder of this Muslim individual perceived the rocket emoji as being like, you know, a terrorist threat. So that person gets up from their seat and they report the two men to the crew. And what ends up happening is that they're asked, the entire plane is asked to deboard. These men were marched off of the plane in front of the other passengers in like a really humiliating manner. Their bags were searched um, in front of the other passengers in, in plain vision. One of the men like went up, you know, prior to the plane scheduled departure, he went to the lavatory, they ended up like emptying out the lavatories in case there was like a bomb threat there. They they took all of the luggage off of the plane. And like, it was a real big like, this is what you you would term security theater. So there was no threat that existed. Um, It was acknowledged by the crew and the staff that there was no threat that existed. And still after they acknowledged that to these two Muslim men, they said, black Muslim men, by the way, and they basically said, well, unfortunately, you can't head out on this flight. And they sent them back on separate flights. So these two men Wait, were flying. So even even yeah. after they were, quote unquote, cleared or whatever, they couldn't get back on the plane. And then they were, they yeah. were forced to take separate flights. That's yeah. uh, unreal to me. Yeah, they were forced to take separate flights and they there was no apology or anything like that from the airline. You know, they were basically like, you know, after this incident was over, like they were expecting like something back from the airline and it was basically just like disappeared into the ether and nothing really happened. Like they contacted us like right after the incident happened and we investigated what was happening there. And we basically like, I mean, we sent a, a letter to the airline asking them like, you guys need to make this right for these passengers. This is a traumatic experience. Like they can't speak their native language on the flight. What is what's up with that? And, you know, this is traumatic. This is like you inconvenience them like they're like missing meetings. And like, what what are you going to do to make this right? And so, you know, I started like a Twitter thread, just like calling out what exactly happened. And 
at that point, you know, once they get put on blast on on Twitter by somebody that has like a big following, then they they responded. They responded within 45 minutes of me tweeting. And um, then I get a call from like, you know, executives at Alaska Airlines like, oh, you know, we're so sorry. We didn't mean to ignore it and so on and so forth. But yeah, I mean, it's so it's an ongoing issue where we're still waiting for them to, to make the situation right. So it's still an ongoing thing. But, you know, it, it's it's something that we, we may end up having to file a lawsuit if they just keep dragging their heels on it. So stay tuned for that. But you need organizations that are out there that are going to call things out like this because this sure. is really absurd. Like. You've had, you know, Muslims that were kicked off of planes for saying inshallah and like speaking Punjabi or Urdu or whatever it may be. It's just like this is a double standard that it, that's existed for far too long. And, you know, we right. have to do something to end this. I want to ask, um, you have three kids, right? Yes. How do you talk to them about Islamophobia and what is what has their lived experience been like? Yeah, it's, it was interesting, um, you know, being in a place like Arizona during the Muslim ban, like at that time, like if I go back to 2017, that means that my oldest would have been like 10, my middle would have been eight, and the youngest was like around four years old. So what's surprising is like in in these classes, like the kids would talk about the Muslim ban or like, you know, in these types of things would permeate the conversations that they'd be having on a day-to-day basis. So, I mean, I've been asked the question by my kids, like, is Trump going to send us away uh, or, send, you know, like, is he going to deport us or something like that? And I'm like, I was born here. So, you know, it's it's your second or third generation now. So it's it's that's beside the point, regardless of of what, you know, what our status is. You're still as American or, you know, you have every right that any other person has in this country. Um, And so just instilling that, just like, you know, being in this position where I was like one of the plaintiffs on the Muslim ban case, the first Muslim ban case that was filed against the administration. So being like visibly up against Trump in in some of these instances and being in the newspaper, like, you know, speaking out against this stuff, I think that that also gives them a little bit of strength to know that like I'm fighting against these perceptions. Like they know the that these, you know, latent and and societal fears and and hatred still exists out there. Um, And that's just something that you have to continuously grapple with throughout time. You know, you're going to get hatred, regardless of who's in office, you're going to get hatred, um, from the left, you're going to get hate from liberals as well. And it's just going to manifest itself in different ways. So, you know, it, this is not just a, a right and left paradigm is what I you know try to tell everybody, but, you know, especially folks that are that I'm close with as well. So just like being on guard when it comes to that type of stuff and like, you know, be proud of who you are. Like my kids all have, you know, strong Muslim names. I didn't like you know, water down their names because they're just going to be out here in, in the society. Like I gave them names. I made them proud. You know, I want to make them proud of who they are. So that's one of the main things. And, you know, it, it's getting better as, as time goes on, you know, there's going to be hateful elements that exist in every society. And, you know, even in a place like in Seattle, if you go an hour outside of Seattle, you have, you know, folks that are living on white supremacist compounds and, you know, people with, you know, Nazi paraphernalia and so on and so forth. So that's just something that that you're always going to have to really contend with, but trying to just navigate around like, you know, this rising tide of hate that exists in our society. I, I read somewhere that <laughs> that your sons give you a hard time uh, about uh, how often y- you uh, 
I guess, fume about Islamophobia in the news and stuff. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just like it, it's become so much a part of my brand or or what I talk about or like when I'm on interviews, like, you know, they're they're like, oh, is this all you know about? Is this all you, you know, care about is Islamophobia? <laughs> so, it, I mean, they, they bring me down to earth when I think that, oh, I have like, a, you know, some cloud on social media or a check mark on Twitter. They're like, yeah, who cares? Did I, did I ask? Like, they're just, they're... Uh, they have a good way of just counteracting any ego that may build up um, <laughs> in my head. So it's, it's always good to have folks around you, especially your your kids that that keep you grounded in these situations. Sure. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty funny. My uh, one last question before my probably next last question, but um, what are the kind of main issues that we should be thinking about? You know, now that Biden's president over the next you know year or two, what are the things that come to mind uh, that you're going to be working on or that you know, Muslims or, or people that are Muslim adjacent, adjacent should be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously like structural things that that need to continue to be pushed on. Like that's one the one thing that I said, like on day one of this administration is that we're not going to let up. Yes, we fought Trump tooth and nail. And, you know, we were dealing with an overt level of hate, somebody who just openly espoused his disgust or disdain for Muslims and, you know, through his policies and, and his words. But with a new administration, I think, you know, Muslims and, you know, minority communities in general have let their laurels down when, you know, maybe uh, outwardly sympathetic administration comes into office and uh, we, we view it through rose colored glasses. So it's important that we like still have like that edge to us. I think this, if anything, like this last four years taught us to like keep that edge and to like be on guard because anything can can happen at any any minute and so that's extremely important like for example like on the minimum wage issue for example which got voted down by a democrat like kirsten cinema who is my former you know senator um in, in arizona like that is something that democrats have to be held accountable for like you know the minimum wage has not gone up in this country on a federal level for like you know 30 40 years and that's something that you know as muslims we need to like be bought into these larger issues we sometimes see things through the lens of our own specific issues and dealing with hate and anti-immigrant or anti-muslim sentiment but we also need to like look at the societal inequities that exist out there like the lack of health care for millions and millions of folks, you know, lack of affordable education for millions and millions of folks, um, income inequality, you know, like super billionaires, and you're going to see trillionaires in, in our lifetime, more than likely, whereas like the minimum wage is still not, you know, budging um, whatsoever. So there's a real, like shift in terms of society and how those things are going. So really holding the Biden administration's feet to the fire on that, you know, making sure that he's holding to his promises when it comes to the admission of refugees to, you know, like ensuring that there's some type of accountability that exists on places like Palestine, you know, where for far too long Palestinians have been ignored, you know, on the Uyghur issue where China's essentially just like putting Muslim genocide and, you know, like into concentration camps and a cultural genocide and, you know, potentially a physical genocide, you know, what's happening uh, to the Rohingya to Kashmiris as well. So there's, tons of things that are happening on a geopolitical level that we have to like use our voice as people of privilege in the West to ensure that, that our country and our society is holding these uh, nations accountable for these human rights violations as well. So 
it's just scratching the surface, but we're, we, we have to just stay hard and focus on those things. We need to focus on achieving systemic change, you know, like changing things altogether, like defunding uh, police on a, on a large level, demilitarization of, of police departments, um, getting out of forever wars on a, on a, a global level. That's also just something that, you know, Democrats and Republicans have been too comfortable with for far too long. And, you know, who's going to push that if Muslims are not pushing for that? So that's that's one some of the main things that we need to be talking about. I think we're in a really interesting point in American Muslim history where our organizations that were upstarts in, in previous years are now evolving into more so like institutions and like getting into the next phase of their life cycle. So I'm, I'm happy to be a part of, of that, uh, you know, growth process. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's amazing. Uh, Imran, uh, appreciate all the work that you do and, and thank you for, for joining the show. Uh, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and love to join you again. My conversation with Imran Siddiqui was recorded in March of 2021. You can find him on Twitter with the handle at Imran Siddiqui. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. We'll also have links to the Council on American Islamic Relations. Uh, From there, you can find your local chapter if you want to learn more. Thanks again for listening. Next week, we're going to have writer and diversity consultant Sahra Ali. She's going to share her story of growing up in the Midwest as a Somali-American. This episode of American Muslim Project was produced and edited by Lindsay Gamble, Marcanato, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our theme music. Check us out online at AmericanMuslimProject.com. Yeah.